Good morning. Thank you. Uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. That's going to be our text for our study this morning. Mark chapter 2. And um, <clears throat> I just have to say, I'm so sorry that I sound like a frog. Um, but I've really had this since January, and I think it's who I am now. So um, it's lovely and feminine, and I'm so happy about it. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Neil started a class. This is terrible. <clears throat> Neil started a class on friendliness and on Wednesday, and he said, um, do you think that we're a friendly church? Do you think that we even need a class on how to be a friendly church? Do you think that you're a friendly person? And let me ask you this question. He said, do you know anybody in this church who is not friendly? Somebody who's unfriendly. Now, I don't want you to call in any names, but do you know somebody in this church who's unfriendly? And um, I started thinking about that, and, and then he waited a second, and he goes, I'm glad you didn't fall for that, because that's not what this class is about. This class is about us. And I felt my cheeks get so hot because I was about to go, yeah. And I've been sitting there thinking, well, this is a friendly church, but there is that one person. And um, it's kind of the same with this lesson that we have before us today. We're talking about relationships with each other. And sometimes it's so easy to focus on the negative and their part and their responsibility and how they responded or didn't respond and they were there or they weren't there or we tried to be there and it didn't go well. But as Neil went on to say, we need to have that attitude in Matthew chapter 7. Um, <clears throat> instead of being worried about the speck, you know, consider the plank in your own eye. And in Matthew chapter 26, um, when Jesus said, at the Passover table, one of you will betray me. And do you remember what they all said one by one around the table? Is it I? Lord, is it I? One by one. So that's, that's the attitude I want us to have as we go into this study. That might help. I don't know. About 10 years ago, um, a, a study was released. Thank you where they had looked at words that were used in writings and books, and they went through millions and millions of books that have been uploaded on Google. And for the past 100 years, they started noticing that words that have to do with good things like morality, justice, um, righteousness, character, uh, humility, those kinds of things declined significantly in our writings, in our books, and as much as by 74%. And the reason I'm sharing this study with you is because what they especially notice is that words that had to do with helping other people. So words like um, compassion and generosity and benevolence and things like that declined the most of all of those words. And so we know that as a whole, this is an area that we can grow in. And that's what I want us to look at today. And I think that, you know, you kind of see people reminiscing. Um, do you remember um, the days when women used to come over to our house and we'd do our laundry together? And we'd have those wash days. And as we had wash days, we would sit around and we would talk to each other. And that was so helpful because we could strengthen each other and encourage each other. Or we'd have a canning day. Or we'd have, you know, you can kind of feel 
people longing for something because we're reminiscing. And we want that. We want other people in our lives. And yet it seems like more than ever we're isolated from each other. And we're doing our own thing in our own little spheres. And and yet we miss that closeness and that relationship and that fellowship. Um, it's not... It's not such a big deal to want to be independent. And we teach that to our children. You know, take care of yourself. Stand on your own two feet. It's not that that's a bad thing. But let's not neglect God's plan for His church and His family. And that's for us to depend on each other. Let's go ahead and look at Mark chapter 2 together and read our our text for our lesson. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12. I can't drink that. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes who were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. And so I want us to look at three different perspectives for this lesson together and see what we can learn. And... Um, check our own heart posture throughout all of this. We're each going to find ourselves in some scenario, the helping or the one being helped. And so let's do a little bit of introspection through this study. The first perspective is the friend's perspective. So the four guys, um, this story is mentioned in three of the Gospels out of four, but none of them say what kind of relationship did they have. Did they know him ahead of time? We don't know. Um, but we do know that they were here involved in this account. So <clears throat> here's what... Oh, <clears throat> sorry. Here's, <laughs> here's what we can learn. They saw the need. Number one, they saw the need. And that's... this. I don't even know. Yeah, my hands are shaking, so I can't even drink this. Well, I've already sucked on three of these. <clears throat> Sorry, guys. It's just gone. It's just gone. Okay. Ah, more paper. <laughs> okay. Sorry. They saw the need. That's our starting point. Is oh good, it's big. <laughs> Let me just say, if this is gonna happen anywhere, I'm glad it's here because we be brethren and y'all know me and you already love me, I hope, so um 
we can't say, I didn't know. Because God lays the responsibility on us to be our brother's keeper. And step number one is to be aware and to see the need in the first place like they did. Now, I don't know if um, the paralytic cried out for help and made them aware of the need. I don't know if they just saw it, if they knew it ahead of time. We don't really have those details, but we do know that they saw the need. And I mentioned this isolation a minute ago, and um, they're starting to do these studies now to help congregations as a whole form relationships, and they're directed to the leaders of congregations. And one of them I thought was really interesting because it was called the seven levels of church relationships. And if you think about your own relationship with your brothers and sisters, you don't have the same relationship with all the people in your congregation. And that's what this study was all about. And it goes through and it says, um, number one is acquaintance. This is where you know each other by name, and so you greet each other You know when you see each other, but that's about it. Number two is ministry associate. So you start doing things together. Um, in the building, church activities, in a, in a church setting, but then everybody goes their own way. Number three is friend. You start finding people that you like, and so maybe you'll invite them to your house for a party or something. The next level is brother and sister. Well, you start learning. We have things in common, and I like the fact that, that we have these things in common. And so we start meeting more often outside of the building and experiencing things together. The fifth level is family. Um, we believe the same things. We encourage each other in the same things. Maybe we'll pay for each other's meals sometimes, even when we go out. Um, and we'll, we're quick to defend each other as long as it doesn't cost us too much. Okay? The sixth level is sharing family. And that's where it's a little bit deeper. Um, we're, we're building deeper connections, although we're not really in sharing our hearts with them, who we really are, um, the things in our past that only a few people know about, you know, things like that. And then the final level is that intimate family. There are no boundaries. Um, we share everything. We share our hearts. We share our lives. We share our struggles, all of these things. And we know that this is the goal. This level is the goal because 1 John 3.16 says we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We are willing to sacrifice. Now this study says that most churches fluctuate between level 1 and level 5 and never move beyond that. We don't get to the point where we're willing to share everything. We don't get to that point. And so that's a challenge for us. And the enemy rejoices over that. If I can keep you guys isolated from each other and independent-minded, then I'll have an easier time of getting to you and getting into your hearts. <clears throat> um, not too long ago, I have a, a young friend. She's six years old. Her name is Kennedy, and she is the cutest little girl. And, uh, you know, I'll say hi to her, and she's like a little adult. And so one day I go up to her, and I say, hey, I said, what are you going to be doing tomorrow? And she said something, and <laughs> just add that to my stash. Thank you. Thanks. She said something back, and I didn't really hear what she said, but it didn't bother me. It's usually, you know, I'm going to go swim in our pool. I'm going to go to my cousin's house. I'm, it's always those kinds of things. 
I didn't hear what she said, and I said, well, that sounds like fun. And she went, and I was like, well, that was interesting response. And then I stood up, and I looked at her dad, and he's going, and so all afternoon, I was like, what did she say? And so that night, I went up to her dad, and I said, um, when, when I asked Kennedy what she was going to do on the next day, did she say something bad? And he goes, yeah, her best friend died. We're going to his funeral. And I had to go up to her and apologize and hug her and say, I'm so sorry. I wasn't listening. And we do that sometimes. It's not intentional. How are you doing? Good, good. I was at a ladies' day a couple weekends ago in Shakota, Oklahoma, and um, they had us break up into these little groups, and they, this is really starting to hurt. <laughs> and they were saying, it's working now, they were saying, um, how do we get beyond foyer talk? <laughs> how do we get into each other's lives? And, and so, many good, so many good suggestions were made. One lady said, we need to listen for cues. Because a lot of times we're not going to come right out and say it, but we have our little cues. And she said, for instance, if a widow makes a comment to you like, you're so blessed to still have your husband, what is she really saying? I'm lonely. I'm lonely. And it's so easy to get so in our own little worlds that we overlook these things. And we need to see the need. That is step number one. Open our eyes talk to people, but then listen, pay attention. What are they saying? What are those cues? The second thing we learned is that they wanted to help. And um, here they are, they're trying to, to get through this crowd. And I, I try to keep envisioning in real life this scenario playing out because can you imagine yourself in that crowd and these four guys are carrying a pallet with somebody laying on it and they're trying to get through and apparently nobody's willing to move out of the way. What in the world? And all I can think of is, you know, they were there to hear Jesus. So was it that they didn't want to give up their spots? Was it that they were just so enthralled with whatever he was saying that they were unaware of what was going on over here? I don't know. I don't know what the reason was, but nobody moved out of the way. They were not helpful. The crowd was not helpful. But then we also have the scribes and Pharisees in this account. Here were the scribes and Pharisees the role models, the, the religious leaders of the day, the ones who really should have known better. And they were too busy criticizing Jesus in their hearts. They didn't even see what was going on or didn't care to help. So you've got the crowd, the scribes and Pharisees, and they took no action. And we have to ask ourselves, are we ever in those extra parties mentioned in this text? Um, you know, it's so easy to kind of melt into the crowd and think somebody else will take care of it. Somebody else will meet that need. Somebody else will be there for them. Or maybe we even find ourselves in that position of religious authority and we're so caught up in our own importance or whatever it might be. We know the word. But we're so busy maybe um, being suspicious of others or judging or whatever we're wrangling with or debating about with the current trend in the church that we're missing the needs of the people right in front of us. And so sometimes we find ourselves in these 
extra parties. First John 3.17 says, Whoever sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So they were willing to help. Open your Bible real quick to Job chapter 2. Job chapter 2. And it's already been referenced a couple of times this morning, but Job lost absolutely everything. And his friends showed up. And, I've, you know, we've all talked about the fact that they never should have opened their mouths. Job even calls them miserable comforters later in the text. But in Job chapter 2, we see that they wanted to help. They wanted to help. Look at verses 11 through 13. And just from these few verses, look at everything they did that shows us they wanted to be there for him when they saw him in need and they wanted to help. So what do you see in verse 11? They heard about it. They heard about everything that happened to Job. What did they do in verse 11? They each came from their own place. So they traveled um, and they went to this little bit of effort to come be with him. What else does it say in verse 11? They made a what together? They made an appointment together. And so they're talking about how can we come together and help him? Let's all go be with him together. And it says in verse 11, what did they want to show him? They wanted to show him sympathy and comfort. They wanted to help. Look at verse 12. When they saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize him. Now remember, he's covered with boils and he's been scraping his skin. They didn't even recognize him. What did they do in verse 12 when that happened? They raised their voices. They wept. What does it say they did with their garments? They tore their garments. Um, We might not grasp the effect of this one simple action because we have a whole closet full of more clothes than we need, but they probably didn't. You know, they didn't have what we have. And so to tear your garment is a, is a sign of sacrifice. And I'm suffering with you. And I'm, I'm mourning with you. And so, and then they sprinkled dust on their heads. And they sat with him on the ground for how long? A whole week. Seven days and seven nights. Not even saying a word. Because they saw his suffering was very great. They wanted to help. Job's friends wanted to be there for him. Just be there for people. And, you know, they kind of messed up when they opened their mouths. And I think that's our fear. I don't know what to say. Um, But people always remember you being there for them. Just be there. The third thing we learn, excuse me, about the friends is they knew where to get help. Now, the, the paralytic had an obvious need. He couldn't walk. But could they heal that for him? No. They didn't have that kind of power, but they knew where to take him to get that help. And no matter what obstacles we have to go through to help others, and, you know, sometimes it's really messy, and we're not qualified, and we can't really see our way to resolve whatever it is some people are struggling with, but we know who can, and we know who to get them to to help. And we can remind them to see God, be with God, be in front of God with those prayers, with um, tucking scriptures in those cards, you know, all these little ways that when people are hurting, we can get them in front of Jesus, as the text says in Luke 5, verses 18 and 19. So they knew where to get help. We see that they didn't offer excuses. 
And this is the part that steps all over my toes because look what they already did do. Um, they, they tried. They tried to get him to Jesus, and then the crowd would not budge. And they could have said, well, look how crowded it is. Not only that, but Jesus is right in the middle of teaching, and we don't want to interrupt him. And not only that, but there, there are some really important people present. I mean, the, the scribes and Pharisees had a little bit of status. They got to sit in this uh, occasion. The rooftop wasn't their property. I mean, they they had a whole plethora of excuses they could have thrown out there, and they would have been valid excuses. And I place myself in this scenario, and I keep thinking, you know, <clears throat> I would pick up that pallet. I'd, I'd be one of the guys grabbing the corner and trying to get them through the crowd, and then when nobody moves out of the way, I'd be like, okay, let's just set them right here. Because we did our best. I mean, the text actually comes right out and says they were unable to get him to Jesus. And I think I would have patted myself on the back and said, well, we tried. We tried. But these guys just got creative. They did not let that stop them from really helping the one in need. If you're looking at your notes, I have a list of excuses that we might give or things that we might say. I don't want to interfere. This family likes to keep to themselves. Um, that would probably be better coming from somebody else. Or this one, well, I said, let me know what I can do. And give them an inch, they'll take a mile. You know, we have a ready list of excuses, but to borrow the words of Jesus in our text, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? I just need you to push through and help them. Let us not love in word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth, 1 John 3, verse 18. You probably know somebody who has a knack for practical help. Um, that's not really a strength of mine. I'm really good at saying, let me know how I can help. And I feel like a situation will come up, and I'm racking my brain. Um, what am I supposed to do? But I know people who do this naturally. Um, our Carla Moore is one of those people. And you've probably known her long enough to, to see her in action. Our boys love her because they were she was always feeding them pizza rolls. And, you know, a new mom with a baby, she's the one that says, let me come to your house and sit with your new baby so you can sleep. You know, she... And then I'm like, oh, I wish I had thought of that. And some people are just like that. They're, they have this natural ability to really help. And I struggle with that, but I know those people. And I know I can watch and learn. And maybe if i am got my own scenario that comes up, I can call and say, what would you do here? What would be the most helpful thing? But the more we do it, right, the more natural it becomes. So... Another thing we see is that their actions made an impact. And the four men in the text, we don't have them saying anything at all. They didn't say, let me know how I can help. Their actions spoke louder than their words, for sure. And notice all the action words that we see in Mark chapter 2. In verse 3, they carried their paralytic. In verse 4, they removed the roof. They dug an opening. They let down the pallet. Their faith had nothing to do with anything they said and everything to do with what they did. They just jumped in and got to work. And I love how the Bible says that Jesus was looking at their faith when he addressed the paralytic. And so it's such a beautiful, powering moment. It was their efforts 
that resulted in the healing of another, even though Jesus was the one that did the healing. Their faith that caused Jesus to restore someone else. And I think that's such a good reminder for us. Our actions through God can make an impact on others. Um, <clears throat> Galatians 6, 2 says, Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. And the word burdens here is, is heavy stones. Help them help them carry these heavy stones, whatever they are. They may be spiritual, they may be physical, they may be emotional, um, loneliness. We've heard about some things in the two lessons already that have been presented. People are carrying these heavy stones. Bear one another's burdens. Um, in context, what's he talking about in verse 1? If any of you is caught up in a trespass, a sin. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. It could be those kinds of burdens. We're to bear one another's burdens, carry, pick up, support right along with them. And the paralytics was very physical. You know, he needed help because he couldn't walk. But there are so many people around us who could use real friends because of spiritual burdens, spiritual struggles that they're trying to carry. And what are some practical ways that we bear one another's burdens? You know, it's it's being a listening ear. It's involving other people, bringing in other spiritual people to help be a part of their lives. It's um, providing practical scriptures. It's pledging to walk with them. If it's somebody who's struggling spiritually, pledge to be with them on that walk as they're trying to make their way back home. That's hard. That's a lonely walk to make. But I'll be there with you, and you don't have to do it by yourself. And never forget the power of prayer. Um, James 5, 16 and 17, remember, says, Pray for one another because the effective prayer of a righteous man, what does it say? Accomplishes much, availeth much. Verse 14 says, The elders should pray over the sick, and the prayer of offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. That's exactly what happened in Mark 2. You've got the ones who are faithful acting on behalf of another, and then the Lord does the work on behalf of that other one. And here, God is saying that you can do that through prayer on behalf of others. There's so much power in prayer. Galatians 6, 9, and 10. So later, after the bear one another's burdens, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then... While we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. So we've spent the most of our time looking at the friend's perspective. The second one I want us to notice is the paralytic's perspective. And um, again, we don't have very many specifics about him, but I feel like we can still learn a lot just from his point of view in this account. And the first thing is he accepted help. I shared with you in the notes that not too long ago, Hiram Kemp was teaching a Bible class at Lehman Avenue, and he started out by saying, in the past month, how many of you have had an opportunity to help somebody? And just about all of us raised our hands. And he said, how did that make you feel? And, you know, of course, people are saying, like, it felt good. I felt it was good to feel needed. It was I was happy to help. Um, I was glad they came to me. It made me feel special that they asked me for help. All very good responses. And then he said, how many of you have asked for help in the past month? (laughs) No hands went up. No hands. And then he said, why not 
Why not? And I don't know what comes to your mind, but we probably all maybe feel the same way. I don't want to bother anybody else. Everybody else has their own things going on. Um, I can take care of it. I don't want to seem needy. I'm embarrassed. Maybe it's a very difficult spiritual struggle. I'm ashamed. We have all these reasons for not accepting help, but I think this is just as important in this text of allowing people to help. The paralytic accepted help. Um, He was probably very excited. Now we're going to do some conjecture here, speculation. He was probably very excited when they picked up his pallet. Then they can't get through the crowd, so maybe he's, ah. You know, then they start, I'm trying to envision this. They start making their way to the ladder to get to the top of the roof. How in the world? You know, what is going through his mind at this moment? What's the plan here, guys? And then they get up there. Then they start digging a hole. And, you know, what What are we doing? What are we doing here? And how did he feel when they're lowering him down right in front of Jesus, right in front of the crowd? And, you know, did it make racket? Was there... Was there debris, you know, coming down through the roof? Um, When the pallet landed, did it land kind of clumsily? You know, here's what I know. All of a sudden, his helplessness is the center of attention. Nobody wants that. And I don't know, I don't really know what he was thinking. But I'm trying to envision myself in that situation. I don't want attention drawn to my bad moments or my weak moments, or my helplessness, or my sins, or my mistakes, or any of these things. But that's where he was. Thankfully, it happened right in front of Jesus. And so, it's a little bit of conjecture here, but he became the center of attention. Just yesterday, we have a Facebook group, some of you probably do too, for your congregations, um, just members. And we have a sister in Christ, one of our elders' wives. She's been battling cancer for a year at stage four. And now she has COVID. And now her husband has COVID and he can't go to work. And so just yesterday, they put on this members group that all of us can see. Um, They could use some help financially. And if any of you can help, please contact the church office and we'll let you know how you can get them some money. And so we're already here and I'm reading this and my first thoughts, my first thoughts was, that's, that's embarrassing. I would not, I would not want that to be me. I would not want to be in that situation. Um, Did whoever post this get permission? And here I've been studying this text. And that's still my first thought. Why do we react that way? Why are we why are we so afraid of letting people in and seeing us in our vulnerable moments? And I was even protective of them. Why did they put that in the group? <laughs> you know? This could have been handled on the down low. But they're there, giving all of the rest of us an opportunity to be a blessing. And we know that when we bless others, we ourselves are blessed and we have an opportunity to fulfill the law of Christ. As we read in Galatians chapter 6, accepting help from others can be awkward. It can be uncomfortable, especially if it's a spiritual problem. 
James 5.16 says that we're to confess our sins to one another. How can others help us if we're not sharing these things? Um, He was willing to accept help. He had four friends. He had four friends helping him. And I think that's a reminder for us that that's what the church is for. There is no shame and letting other people in. God's family is one of his best blessings for us, and maybe we could do a better job of taking advantage of it. When we go through trials, I don't think it's that they don't want to be a part of it. I think we don't let them. And I think we need to let them in to go through our struggles with us that we just heard about. We need to let them in to rejoice with us over the good things and the things we're conquering and overcoming. We need to let them in to be a part of our hearts. Number two, from the paralytic, we see that he was stronger for it. Um, He wasn't just healed, right? What else happened? What did Jesus do for him? Your sins are forgiven. I mean, you woke up a completely different person this morning, and you're going to bed healed and whole and forgiven. He got way more than he expected. And I love Mark 2.11. says that um, Jesus told him to pick up his pallet and go home. So everybody witnessed that awkward moment, but they also saw this. They saw Jesus at work. They saw him getting up and walking out on his own two feet. Who are you faithful for? Who are your people? Your faithful people who care about your relationship with God. Who will point you to the word? And who will remind you to study? Who will hold you accountable in your faithfulness? Who's willing to be honest with you? Who are those people that after you spend time with them, you feel so much better? You feel stronger spiritually. Those are your faithful four. It takes trust to let people in. And I'm not talking about trusting others. I'm talking about trusting God because that's his plan. And so it takes trust to let others in on our problems and see our weaknesses. And we're better for it because we get to swallow our pride and that's spiritual growth. We get to share our burden and that's emotional relief. We see God at work and that's going to build our faith. Um, And then don't you think in that moment, whoever we let in is going to make that relationship even stronger? How many people... Have you seen go forward in their broken moments and you think, wow, how disappointing. I never want anything to do with them again. Is that how you respond? No, we don't. We're so proud of them. We just want to hug the stuffing out of them. We want to love them. We want to say thank you for your strength. Thank you for your example. And we've seen something in them that helped us. And yet... We don't want to do that for other people. I'm saying we because I know how I feel. And so we want to give people an opportunity to grow these relationships, fulfill the law of Christ. Okay. What if we've done this before and it turned out badly? We didn't let somebody in. We were vulnerable. And it didn't go the way you had hoped. Maybe they weren't there for you or they couldn't be there for you. Maybe they said the wrong thing. Maybe they shared something with others that you told them in confidence. That's going to happen because we're the church and we're made up of imperfect people. Do you think God wants us to use that for the rest of our lives and say, well, I tried that. I'm never going to do it again. No, of course not. It's unfortunate.
unfortunate and it probably hurt, but we extend grace and we do it again because that's the nature of God's family. And sometimes, you know, sometimes we think, I don't really have a faithful four. I don't really have those people in my life. I don't really have good relationships. Um, Another study that was done was on the five characteristics of positive relationships and these five different ways that you can build good, healthy, strong relationships. And this study is geared specifically toward the church family. And the first one was growth. Are you seeing any change in your relationship at all? That first list that I shared with you on the seven levels, I was looking at that. Do you remember how the first one is acquaintance? You know, these are the people at church. You know their name and you say hi. But it really doesn't go beyond that. I started thinking about that in in light of this particular list. And I thought, what's level zero? Because I know for a fact there are members of the Lehman Avenue Church of Christ whose names I don't know. And I don't even greet them every week. And so what's what's level zero? And so in trying to grow healthy relationships, growth should be something that is seen. It's visible. It's going beyond the, the, the foyer talk and um, doing things together, serving together. That always grows a relationship. You should be able to see this growth because it's evident. And if you can't see that, there's something that you can do to take steps toward growing a healthy relationship. The second one is responsibility. Um, Don't worry about their parts. Just take care of your own part. Just take care of your own stuff. Actively work on your part in the relationship. The third one is positivity. It's so easy to focus on the negative stuff and the negative relationships. Um, We don't have to do that. God sees it all. Everybody sees it all. None of us are perfect. We have eyeballs. Talk about the positive things, especially to and about those relationships in the Lord's church. I love the fourth one. Um, The fourth trait that you can bring in to grow positive relationships in your church family is lightness. And it's really talking about a sense of humor and that things are going to happen in the body. And if we um, can learn how to make light of it and bring in some humor, then that'll help positive relationships grow. And then the last one was directness. We know how important this is because God talks about it in his word. This is handling person-to-person friction or problems in the relationship. And the author says, don't triangle in other people with gossip and complaints about those relationships. So am I growing in my relationships with people in my church family? Am I positive? Am I looking for the light in any situation? Am I direct in my relationships? Or are there areas that I can um, practically grow in any one of these in the next year? So these are some things that we can be thinking about if we think, I don't really have a faithful four. Um, I think all of you should have a a copy of a poem that I ran across. Um, This is really a prayer for personal growth. I think when I read that, it's what made me think of it. With the help of God, my family, and friends, I am growing confidence and assurance in myself and others. I'm developing new possibilities and opportunities, advancing compassion and encouragement, and building vision and hope. 
I pray that I will complain and lament less. I pray that I will forget how to scold and whine. God help me to grow, develop, advance, and build. And I want to put this prayer somewhere where I see it every day, pray it every day, and try to live it every day. It makes me think of Ephesians 2.19, that we're fellow citizens with the saints. We are of God's household. We're being fitted together, growing, being built together. That's what God wants. The final perspective that we're going to look at is the Son of Man's perspective. In all three of these accounts, this is how Jesus refers to himself because he had the authority and he was God. He could forgive sins. Um, All throughout this account, we have at least five references to deity pointing to God, pointing to the one who amazes, Mark chapter 2, verse 12. If you're looking at your notes, the first thing I started out that we learn is that he cares. But I really thought of something else later before that one is the title of this lesson, Seeing Their Faith. I think that's the first lesson that we learned from Jesus in this account because obviously there was the paralytic on the pallet needing help. But Jesus, as he's being lowered, he sees the guys up there that did the work to get him to Jesus. And the Bible says, seeing their faith. And I think that's such a good reminder for all of us to look around and see the ones who are helping Um, the ones who are good at being a part of other people's lives and helping them get to Jesus and recognizing their faith, acknowledging their faith, thanking them for their examples, joining them in their efforts to get people in front of Jesus, seeing their faith. And don't you think that will help us in our attitude toward the body of Christ? Um, Then we learn that he cares. Now, From all the other perspectives, the other two that we looked at, all the points are past tense because they're things that they did. But notice with Jesus, they're present tense, and it's because he still does these things. He cares. In the accounts, he addressed the paralytic as son. In one of the accounts, in another account, he calls him friend. He told him to take courage, which, you know, considering what he may have been feeling in that moment, was probably very comforting to him. Um, We see that he cares by his reaction to the interruption. He's teaching. I'm teaching. Nobody's coming through the roof. And if it happened, you know, Jesus doesn't say, what do you think you're doing? You know, he, he responds in compassion. He saw their faith, not their mess. And he was moved by their faith. So he cares. He has the power. The power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing, Luke 5, 17. And we know he has the power because he healed him, but he was also reading hearts of the people in that space who was watching what was going on. And that's where he read the hearts of the religious leaders. And so sometimes we can feel inadequate no matter what side we fall on. If, if I see somebody in need and I know I need to help, Um, I might feel a little bit insecure in my own abilities or feel inadequate in being able to help them. Um, I might be nervous about it, timid about it, introverted about it, whatever it might be, but Jesus is the one that has the power. And if I'm on this side that's being helped 
and I'm embarrassed or I feel inadequate, Jesus is the one that has the power to help that situation. He is immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power. Ephesians 3.20. It's not about us. It's about Jesus or Christ who is working through us. We also learn that he changes lives. We've already mentioned that the paralytic's life was completely changed. And I think my favorite part of the story is when the account uses words like awestruck. Everybody was awestruck. And they say things like, we have seen remarkable things today. And can you imagine how he felt? When was the last time anybody saw anything remarkable about him? But because of what was happening, Jesus changing lives, people witnessed remarkable things. The important thing to remember is that in all three perspectives, the glory of God was involved. The friends trying to get him to Jesus, the paralytic accepting help, Jesus performing the miracle, they all glorified God. And that's repeated over and over in the text. And if that's our objective, that God is glorified in all of this, as the helper, we'll get over ourselves and go the second mile to be there for people. As the one needing help, we'll get over ourselves and we'll humble ourselves enough to accept help because God will be glorified. Um, I mentioned that I was in Shakota, Oklahoma, Shakota, Oklahoma, last week, and they um, Curtis Hartshorn is the preacher there. Some of you will know him from his work with the school, and his wife Kathy. So Curtis Hartshorn is this tall, and his wife is about this tall. And though she was, they were sharing, sharing the story of how um, they went back to visit his family. And she says that everybody in his family is this tall. And so when she goes, she feels like she's going to the land of the giants. And they all went on a hike. And somebody told them a bear has been spotted, so be careful. Well, Curtis's family said, if that bear shows up, He's going after Kathy because she's small. You know, she's the little one. And so they all encircled her for the rest of the hike. His whole family, she was in the middle. His whole family surrounded her to keep her safe. And I love that because we might not have a bear coming after us, but we know we have a roaring lion coming after us, seeking whom he may devour. And sometimes we need to let our church family encircle us and keep us safe when we're weak and feeling small. And of course, be there for the new Christians, the babes in Christ, the ones who are struggling, the ones who have been knocked down. Let's, let's encircle them and keep them safe. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 is all about, starting in verse 24. God made the church body in such a way as to look out for each other. It says God has so composed the body. And composed is to bring about a blend by mixing various items to affect a harmonious unit to fit together to unite so that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. You know what? You know what she just said? Sorry for the frog. <laughs> Is there anybody in here that was bothered by the frog? No. I first heard this explanation of seeing their faith in Michael Hyde's class in Mark, on Mark, and I thought, wow, I've never even noticed that. 
seeing their faith. And so that led me to when I was thinking about lectureship topics and seeing her faith. Uh, when we came here, I'd known Kathy for many years, and but seeing her faith here, and then it made me start thinking about other people's faith that are here in this room, and and I was a little distracted, sorry, because I was thinking, just kind of going through, thinking of your mom and other people throughout this whole room, who you can see their faith demonstrated. Grandma, Sarah. We and like you say in your in your notes, it has nothing to do with anything they said and everything to do with what they did. Sometimes it has things to do with what people say. A lot of times it does, but you can see their faith in action. You can see their growth. You can see their love for God. You can see their priorities. So thank you for that. And hasn't this been a good morning? And I'm so glad I've been here. And let's bow for a word of prayer before we go. Father, thank you so much for this enriching morning. We're so grateful for the peace that we've had while we've been able to sit at the feet of these good women. Bring us back after lunch, God, and help us to have another enriching afternoon. Thank you again. In Jesus' name, amen. Come back at 1. Cherie's going to speak to us on hope as an anchor, and then at 2 o'clock, Cindy Baker's going to speak. We're going to have a great afternoon. Thank you.